As we look at God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words written by Paul all those years ago. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us afresh this morning. Take my words and let them be for your glory. Amen. Well, uh, leadership roles are very important to us, aren't they, within our society? Whether that be in business, healthcare, education, politics. And whenever leadership roles fail through incompetence, moral failure, or criminal action, the outcomes and the damage to the reputation of that particular organisation can be immense. So the question for us this morning is, what is it that makes a good leader? If I could have the uh, first slide, please. Uh, If I'd given you a piece of paper and asked you, what would you write down for the characteristics of the person applying for this job? It was taken from the Church Times a couple of weeks ago. I've just missed out the actual names of the place. But you will see it says, we're looking for a parish priest who's keen to work in a multi-parish rural benefice, will release and recognise gifts of ordained and lay colleagues, values traditional and contemporary expressions of church and will develop links with the local village. What would be the characteristics that you would write down for the person who'd want to apply for that job? Or if that's too difficult, what about this one? Now this one is one that actually is closer to home. I've made it up, it didn't appear in the Church Times. But I think it's appropriate, isn't it? Wanted, Holy Trinity. We're looking for people who would like to lead small groups of Bible study and prayer. What would be the characteristics of the person that you would want to to volunteer or to apply for that position? Well, that really is what Paul is talking about today. If you remember, we're in this letter of 1 Timothy And Paul is very concerned about leadership. Paul had planted churches, and those churches needed guidance and encouragement concerning leadership positions. And Paul wants Timothy, this young leader, and the Ephesian church to honour God and to give him glory. We read in Acts chapter 20, where Paul instructs the elders of the Ephesian church to keep watch of yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's great evidence, isn't it, that Paul cares for the followers of Jesus. He cares for God's children and he cares for the leadership. And it's in this light, I think, that we can look at this particular passage this morning. Why does he care so much, though? Well, I think he cares because the reputation of the Christian body amongst unbelievers reflects not only on themselves, but on Jesus Christ and his gospel message as well. And this is what underlies this teaching. Because Paul has such a high view of God's community here on earth and the leadership of those people, he he wants to draw the best out from them. He wants them to be the best leaders they can possibly be. 
Remember the context of it, which if you've been here uh, with us in the previous few weeks, you'll have heard that in the Ephesian churches there had been leaders who had led Christians away from the truth. So a question then that's relevant to each one of us this morning and relevant throughout the ages is, who is fit to lead in the church? Who is fit to lead in the church? Well, while he's addressing the qualities required for leadership, I think we can recognise that these qualities should be required for all who follow Jesus and claim that he is their Lord and Master. And if we're honest with ourselves, as we come to look at this passage this morning, we will see that it challenges us all. It challenges us to pray for ourselves as well as for our leaders and potential leaders. The modern church within its structures has many leaders, from small group uh, leaders of Bible study groups, youth leaders, music leaders, in fact, any who seek to care and lead those within its body. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if, you haven't, if you've closed your Bibles. Now, what has changed? Well, there has been a change in Paul's writing. In the first two chapters, we've seen what Paul has told the Christians what they ought to do. So there's been issues concerning prayer. There's been issues concerning false teaching. There's been issues concerning what women ought to wear. But now it changes to issues of what the leaders in the church ought to be. It's all about our characters as Christian, as Christians. The moral lapse and defection of some of these church leaders, seen in chapter 1, verse 3, had undoubtedly left the fellowship in a state of instability and open to the devil's work of bringing discord and division. What Paul calls in verse 7, the devil's trap. And this internal disruption was likely to have been met by severe criticism from some unbelievers. So for these reasons, these two lists we've got in this passage describes Paul's qualifications for the offices of overseer and deacon. And in each case, they point to the candidate's reputation amongst believers and unbelievers on the basis of their moral character and maturity. Because in this passage, there is virtually nothing said about what the actual duties are of these positions. No, it's all about their character. The standard is high. Look at verse 2. It's to be above reproach. Or in verse 10, it's to be blameless. It's extremely high but not out of proportion to the importance of the church's mission in the world. And I believe that this is important and relevant to us today, as the reputation of the church amongst unbelievers often isn't very high. We live, don't we, in a world where Christian leaders are often vilified and criticised. We don't hear of the positive moral requirements of church leaders. And in fact, the opposite often happens when leaders are convicted of moral crimes. Within our church, we're trying to address these issues in the, uh, in the course that Will is running called, called Growing Leaders. Within that course, there's a whole section on the moral character 
of what leadership should entail. So we're trying to address this here as well. So what about these two groups then that he discusses in verses 1 and verses 8? Well, the first one, overseer. The NIV translates this as overseer. And, uh, but the word, isn't, this isn't the first time this word has been used. In fact, it refers to supervisors of various sorts. They were found in Jewish society, as it was first set up by Moses. They were also found in Greek and Roman societies. They were elders, basically people who looked after people. As a description of one level of church leadership, we we read of it in Acts 20 and also in Philippians 1, where it's put alongside deacons. To judge from the account of Paul's farewell meeting with the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20 and the instructions he gives in Titus 1, the term overseer and elder refer to the same office. So what did it actually entail? Well, it entailed preaching, teaching, and generally leading and managing the church. So that's what Paul is meaning by overseer. What about deacons? Well, deacons may well have included women, and they seem to have come about as the church grew in size and the demands on leadership required that certain functions be delegated. So we read in Acts 6 of table-waiting deacons. Philippians 1 also refers to them. Teaching and ruling are not specifically mentioned, but obviously there are some cases where this took place. But basically speaking, the the deacons were the people who looked after the practical needs of the congregation. And we we read in verse 9 that not only must they look after the practical needs, but they must be men who hold to the deep truths or, or mysteries of faith. So in other words, they must be men who could explore the depths of faith and share this with the church. So that's what Paul says about these two roles within the community of the church. A very obvious question for each one of us is then, if Paul had such high moral standards, who would actually want to be an overseer? Well, Paul tries to uh, reassure them by saying, in verse 2, it's a noble task. Perhaps the problems of corrupt teachers in Ephesus had led some to regard the office with suspicion and disrespect. If so, a reminder of the honour and importance attached to this position might well be restored by his teaching. So what then were the requirements for these leadership positions? Well, the general point made by Paul in these verses 2 to 11 is that the candidate's reputation must be above reproach. The focus is on observable contact. In other words, what they actually do. And then the implication here is that there will be judgment by the society that they live in and the name of Jesus will be judged. Most of the items of behaviour that follow in this list require little explanation. We understand what the words mean. But is this our expectation for candidates to leadership positions? There is perhaps one exception to that. 
And that is the sentence referring to the overseer's marriage. Although we may cringe at the thought, most of us would probably admit that one's marriage sheds a good deal of light on one's character. And Paul apparently had similar feelings. But the meaning of the condition that the overseer be husband of but one wife, literally a one-woman man, continues to provoke discussion amongst commentators. We've got to recognise the fact that within Paul's society that he lived in, there was moral chaos, perhaps a bit like our society today. Divorce was common, even amongst the Jews, and there were cases of polygamy where a man had more than one wife. The most likely understanding, then, of this statement is that of faithfulness in marriage. The tone of the phrase is positive rather than negative. The flow of thought in the list moves from personal to church life, from domestic to official functions. And so what is important in Paul's list is what one does in one's private life has a consequence for the church. And so rather than look at how one can be married or what constitutes a legitimate marriage, the feeling is that rather what's important is how one conducts oneself in one's marriage. So a pretty high standard there in that one state sentence. But without a break in the sentence, Paul inserts five positive qualities to amplify the meaning of above reproach. So let's have a quick look at these five positive qualities. The candidate is to be temperate, or a better reading of it would be sober, clear-headed, or vigilant. They are to be self-controlled. Again, it's a, it's a, uh, a quality that Paul frequently refers to in pastoral letters concerning observable Christian life. Christians are to be self-controlled. And this can only happen, of course, if they are filled with God's Spirit. Because God's Spirit allows for control over appetites that are not becoming. Thirdly, they are to be respectable in what they do, in all the behaviour of all kinds, marked by self-discipline, order and balance. Well, is this relevant to us today? Are they actually impossible to achieve? Well, on the one hand, vigilance, self-control, respectability uh, that Paul envisions are rea- realities that are available to, available to us if we invite the Holy Spirit to fill us and live within the Spirit. And they are necessities, aren't they, if we are going to have godly characteristics. Fourthly, hospitality. Within the church, the practice of hospitality was important, and it still is. Think back a couple of weeks to those, that, the bishop's letters concerning refugee status and what we in England should be doing. And so hospitality is an important aspect. And the New Testament calls all believers to practice hospitality. Fifthly, the ability to teach a very important uh, characteristic for the person who would take this leadership position. And remember, in the context of Paul's writing to 1 Timothy, that was the thing that was going wrong with some of those leaders. 
So as the list continues to probe the background of the candidate, it prohibits, it has positive points, five of them, but it also prohibits some characteristics. In fact, he lists four negative characteristics. A tendency towards drunkenness and violence, clearly a case for rejection. A tendency for an overseer to be quarrelsome, which portrays an inability to get along with and accept the views of others. And remember, the false teachers in Ephesus were known for their quarrels, which produced discord instead of harmony. In contrast, a Christian who promotes peace amongst people will create and preserve the relationship necessary for building a unified church. Then we read that the leader must not be a lover of money or pursuing dishonest gain. Why? Well, because all that we have belongs to God and must be looked after faithfully before him. And of course, this applies to each one of us as followers of Christ, because many of us are capable of generating comfortable income. So the questions that rise are, how much is enough? How can we know if we've put money before God? Difficult questions. And that is why Paul's word to overseers is relevant to us today. Well, the candidate, the ideal candidate uh, that Paul envisaged, he concludes with three conditions. The profile of this ideal candidate will have three further conditions. Firstly, he cites proficient management of the household or the family is a vital aspect of church leadership, verses 4 and 5. The effectiveness of one's attempt to lead and provide order in a home speaks volumes. Now, we've got to remember that in Paul's time, beside the male head of the house, there would have been the wife, the children, and depending on the wealth of the household, as slaves. Normally, the authority structure of the household was strictly patriarchal. That, mean, that means that the man was at the head. And at each level, there was expected to be subordination to them. Anything less than this kind of obedience was taken as a sign of disorder and even political subversion. So, because in Paul's time, the stability of the household was regarded as fundamental to the well-being of society as a whole. And perhaps that's something that uh, we need to consider in our society as well. And so for Paul, it would have been unthinkable to sanction as church leaders those that uh, didn't have leadership skills within their own family. The society expected the householders to command the respect of his wife, children, and even slaves. And to expect less from the church leaders would have been at risk of bringing the church into disrepute. So the first thing, then, he cites is the proficient management of the household. But secondly, he says that an overseer must not be a new believer. Look at verse 6. Now, the reason is not because the new believer doesn't have skills of, or, or potential skills of leadership, but rather that they lack spiritual maturity and the danger of pride. 
So the final, so this is an important consideration. The final consideration says clearly what's already been implied, that the overseer must have a good testimony for outsiders, verse 7. And so here we come back a full circle to the idea of the candidate must be irreproachable in their behaviour, particularly amongst unbelievers. The good testimony is to be measured according to these conditions. Perhaps the danger that Paul has got in mind lies in the fact that a fallen leader brings disgrace on the church and its message of Jesus and his gift of salvation. And of course, that is something that we can recognise and has happened throughout history. So, what have we got? Well, we've got a message of very high standards, haven't we? We can recognise the difficulty that these high standards set us. They're impossible for us to achieve and maintain by our own efforts. It is only through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that Jesus promised us when we become Christians through the gift of the Holy Spirit that that anyone can reach these type of standards. So how can we do it? What can we say about this? Well, for this to happen for us, surely we need daily to invite the Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds. We need to keep short accounts with God concerning our sins, so regular confession and repentance. Daily submergence into God's word, the Bible, and regular prayer times alone with God and others will help for us to develop lives that come anything like these standards. But of course, not all of us will want to be leaders or look to be leaders. So how can we be involved in supporting our leaders? Well, surely the only way we can do this is through encouragement, as Paul does, he's encouraging Timothy, and through prayer. So I'd like to conclude that we, that we can do what we can do as a church together in supporting our leaders is to pray for them. So I'd like to finish with this final uh, slide for you. What can we do for our leaders? What can we do for each one of us? Well, surely we can pray these things. We can pray for clear communication of God's word within our church. We can pray for those in serving ministries within our church to hold on to God's word in truth. We can pray for the fruit of God's spirit that love and self-control might be evident in their lives and in our lives. We can pray for the families of leaders that their children may grow up respecting God's word. We can pray for growth in spiritual maturity And we can pray for the reputation of Christian leaders, both here at home in Norwich and further afield across the nation and the nations. We can pray that their reputation with outsiders may build and honour Jesus and his gospel. Amen.